0: folks thanks for listening this is Brian Luritz teaching pastor this is the Kynos podcast we are a pastoral podcast uh, exploring what ethnic unity looks like at a large predominantly white southern church known as the Summit Church I am really excited uh, today. I get to have a conversation with, you get to listen to uh, a guy I have gotten to know uh, some over the years, uh, Pastor Rich Volotis. He's the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens. Uh, You've seen his church if you've actually seen the movie Coming to America. Isn't that right, Rich? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: Absolutely. That's our claim to fame,
0: baby. I love it, man. It's, uh, I think it's uh, in one of the scenes where they're at McDowell's, not to be com- uh, confused with McDonald's restaurant. Can't you kind of see it from there? Is that right?
1: Yeah, when Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are, are, are sleeping or shoveling or whatever it was they were doing outside of the McDowell's, in the background, you see our church in the frame. So uh, a very proud moment for us.
0: Awesome. Well, look, I, I tell people all the time that the most diverse church I've ever spoken at in my life is your church, Rich, uh, New Life. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll get into the intricacies of it in just a little bit, but how, do you, how many nations are represented at your church?
1: Yeah, so we have at least 75 nations represented in our church in a neighborhood where 123 languages are spoken, Uh, And so Elmhurst, Queens is National Geographic, called it the most diverse zip code in the world. And the diversity is also um, as a result of Queens uh, being 50 percent of Queens is foreign born as well. So there's all kinds of diversity in our part of the world.
0: Wow. I I remember uh, some years ago being in that neighborhood, going to an ATM machine where they give you the options of what language Mm -hmm. to pick. Bro, I haven't seen anything like that in my life. Like, that was beautiful and confusing. Yeah,
1: you'll get 15 (laughs) to 20 languages. Wow. Which
0: is why I know which ones not to go to, because it gets too confusing. <laughs> right, right. Well, look, we're we're going to get into, um, you know, the multi-ethnic church, some some things that Rich has found very fruitful, uh, some things maybe we can learn from his experience um, that uh, that are some, some pitfalls, some challenges. But before we get into all this, let me just say, uh, without any sense of flattery, one of the things I really deeply appreciate about... Rich is his commitment to the contemplative life, emotional health, um, and also it's like these two divergent streams coming together in Rich's ministry. Uh, kind of the charismatic, um, really. And by charismatic, I'm not just talking about the full-on affirmation of all of the gifts of the spirit. Um, I'm I'm really talking about uh, a life. Uh, that really is pursuing intimacy with Christ uh, and at the same time embracing healthy emotional rhythms. Um, If you want to learn more about it uh, from Rich's uh, Deep Conviction, which is right at the heart of the scriptures, there's a book that he wrote. In fact, it was his first book that I absolutely loved, could not recommend enough. It's a book called The Deeply Formed Life. I told Rich this. Oftentimes, when you read books from the contemplative stream, you can almost just leave going, um, this is all about me and how I can have a better life. Mm-hmm. What, what rich adds to the conversation, and it is so needed, uh, there's a strong justice component, uh, mm-hmm. an outward component, which I think is just healthy spiritual formation that when we talk about spiritual formation, the end-all be-all is not just to make you a better person, But it is Christ being formed in us that we might make those around us uh, better and enriched. Uh, Rich, just tell us some about your book, The Deeply Formed Life, and uh, a little bit about your journey um, real quickly as it relates to how you came to embrace the contemplative tradition, because you came up, if I can recall, Pentecostal, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The deeply formed life really flows out of the life of our church. And so the five values that we hold together uh, were not chosen arbitrarily. It was very intentional because those values have marked our church for many, many years. And so uh, initially, when I wrote it, I wanted to write something for our congregation so that, we, you know, I could articulate for new people, for people who have been there for a long time, for leaders our paradigm of formation as we seek to follow Jesus and Queens. And what I was trying to do at the core of it is provide something that resisted what I call formational compartmentalization, uh, in which some values or some practices are for some settings and maybe not others. And so, yeah, the, the contemplative stuff, yeah, that's great if you're in a particular setting, but not really in the city that never sleeps it just doesn't work for us right. or racial justice and reconciliation whatever it might be oh that's good for an urban maybe diverse context but maybe not for a monocultural context and so the book is essentially saying no if we're following Jesus in this generation we need to resist formational compartmentalization that's the really the thrust of the book and in terms of my own journey yeah, I mean I became a Christian at nineteen years old. I'm forty three years old until so about twenty four years ago. And just not me, just it was my parents, it was my brother, it was my sisters, it was siblings. Fifteen of us came to faith in one night, uh the spirit was moving Powerfully, as I like to say, if my dog was there, my dog would have said yes to Jesus at that moment. And I had a demonic dog named Milo. Uh, and so he needed Christ. Uh, but I, it was, I became a Christian in that context. But I had a grandfather who discipled me from day one. And he really taught me how to hold on to the Pentecostal stream as well as the contemplative stream. And so he really gave me that foundation. And then from there, thankfully, the college I went to introduced me to the contemporary stream as well. So that's how I got into it.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Rich, you've spent some time um, at a church. Many of our listeners will be familiar with uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle. Um, You were there for a little bit. Um, How did you end up coming to New Life?
1: Yeah, I came to New Life. um, Number one, I think I was looking for uh, an environment that – held on to some of the traditions that were resonating in me. And so the contemplative tradition, the emotional health aspect, the you know, the, the, the racial uh, justice and uh, reconciliation commitment. And so uh, when I saw a new life, I saw something that was so attractive. And then providentially, I think that the Lord connected me with a pastor at New Life, and one thing led to the next. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I thank God for my couple of years at Brooklyn Tabernacle I met my wife there mm. uh, I really I oversaw their college and adult ministry for a few years but really more than anything, it was the approach to following Jesus that new life was doing that I thought that's where I want to be and so um, that was I was 28 years old when I got to new life and so I've, I've been here 14 years um, but it was the beauty of this paradigm that made me say, I want to go from Brooklyn,
0: where I'm from, uh, all the way over, you know, 20 minutes to
1: Queens. All
0: the way over 20 minutes. <laughs> wow, 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 so, so um, you know, our, our listeners should know, you know, one of the knocks on the church is uh, typically the church just doesn't do succession well, um, you know, especially when there's a well-established, well-known pastor. Um, but New Life, and, and I know nothing is perfect, um, but New Life has done succession well. Uh, many of our listeners will uh, be familiar with the name Pete Scazzaro. Uh you, You've probably read uh, his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, there's the Emotionally Healthy Leader and uh, uh, several other works, God's Used Pete, uh, in a in a major way uh Pete started the church if if i'm right there rich yep. okay mm-hmm. and so that would make rich the the second pastor pete uh, is white uh rich what's your what's your ethnicity
1: yeah uh, Puerto Rican so uh, parents born in Puerto Rico uh, I was born in uh, Brooklyn, but yeah puerto Rican descent
0: okay so you you step in um how many years ago did did you assume the role of lead pastor
1: nine years ago Okay. Nine years ago, almost
0: a decade. Okay. Wow. And so you're stepping into this multi-ethnic church. Can you can you give us maybe a handful of things, three to five things um, mm-hmm. that you would say? Man, this is this has been core as it relates to us growing in multi ethnicity. And and granted, I've I asked this for a very selfish reason. You know, we have this this vision at the summit church of being twenty five percent minority by twenty twenty five, which we would say is actually low hanging fruit, just given the the demographics of the triangle, which is fifty six percent white, forty four percent people of color. We're just saying we want to look like our mission field, which is incredibly diverse. And so we really do feel like there's some very practical, tangible things we can learn from you uh, as you all are headed uh, kind of several paces in front of us in this trajectory. What's a handful of things that you have found incredibly fruitful in forming an ethnically diverse body? Mm -hmm.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and New Life is 35 years old, so we've been in this for A number of years and I've had this commitment. Uh, A few things come to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is how we understand the gospel. And that uh, might not sound practical, it might sound theoretical or theological, but I think it's as practical as it can get because our definition of the gospel will determine the extent to which this becomes an important matter. Uh, And so if the gospel is simply about going to heaven when you die, if the gospel is about an atonement theory, if the gospel is about forgiveness of sins, and it begins there and ends there, it actually becomes justifiable to ignore some of these issues as it relates to ethnicity and race and all the rest. And so the ways that we try to present the gospel in our context has been really important. And my working definition of the gospel is that the gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. Hmm. And so if that is the starting point for what the gospel is, what Christ has done, what Christ is still doing through the Spirit, and that wherever there are uh, signs of sin and death, that's where the gospel is to now uh, go into, then it becomes now permissible and justifiable to say, whenever we see uh, racism, whenever we see disunity, uh, whenever we see challenges between people, this is where the gospel is supposed to manifest and be at work. And so I think it begins with how we articulate and the scope by which we understand the gospel. That's the starting point for me. Yeah, And, absolutely. Not, everyone, yeah. and not everyone's there, but people right. just want forgiveness of sins, right. and they want to go to heaven when they die. And we're saying we're, that's beautiful, That's a benefit of the gospel, we love that, but that is not the full story, and so that's the starting point for us.
0: Yeah, that's that's so helpful, and I think that's a very important point. That honestly, we could spend the rest of our time talking about because I think conservative evangelicalism, which is is really the progeny of um, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where the fundamentalists said pretty much the gospel is just vertical, which is exactly your point. And what we like to say around here is the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. So the horizontal is the indicator lights of the authenticity of your vertical relationship to Christ. So um, just like we would say, the the gospel doesn't have a category for um, an unforgiving Christian. Um, Mm. The gospel doesn't have a category for a greedy Christian um, nor does the gospel have a category for a person who says, I'm saved, but is just racially indifferent or is living yeah. in racism. Would, would you agree with that, Rich? Uh,
1: absolutely. I, and, and I think part of what we see in the scriptures, which is why uh, one could make a theological, a clear theological argument that one of the primary fruits of the gospel is that a new family is created. This is Ephesians mm. 2. This is mm. the dividing wall of hostility. Yes. And so to talk about the gospel in, is, is to say immediately thereafter that in Christ, a new family is possible mm. in, what, in, in what Christ has done. And so uh, that's how we think about it at New Life. What is the gospel? And then what is the primary fruit of it? Mm. It is the new family of Jesus. Uh, this is really in Ephesians 2, and not just Ephesians 2, I mean, this is what we see all the way from Abraham to the end of Revelation of uh, a new family being created. So that's kind of the first way that we think about uh, it. Now, if I can also just be very practical and uh, talk about frameworks for a second, what we've discovered at New Life is we need to talk about this matter from from multiple perspectives, that this is such a wide-ranging issue that powers and principalities are be, be, behind, that if we're if we're only looking at it from one vantage point, we're going to miss the complexity of this issue that requires multiple layers. And so I like to think about uh, six layers of conversation and action that must be had if we're going to uh, see the fruit of the gospel at work in our communities. And The the six—I mean, this is not exhaustive, but this is how I've wrestled with it over the years. If we're going to talk meaningfully in this conversation, we must talk about uh, ethnic and racial reconciliation from a theological, a historical, a sociological, a political, an ecclesiological, and a formational perspective. Hmm. And unless we are doing those six perspectives, which is why whenever we have a gospel and race conference or something like that at New Life, I make it a point to invite someone— from at least one of those perspectives Good. Uh, because I, what does scripture say? Where have we been? What analysis of our social world do we need that can help us today? How should our church be oriented? What does this look like in terms of social policy? That's what I mean by politics. I'm not talking about partisanship. I'm talking about how does this now get fleshed out in the ways we think about uh, justice and love in a public manner. And then formationally, what kind of spiritual and emotional life is required to really make inroads into this? Uh, all of those areas for us have been a framework to address uh, race. And that last one, that formational one, is one that I spend a lot of space in because I recognize as a local church pastor, one of my tasks is to help people grow in their own self-awareness and in their own life with God so that we can have meaningful conversations and meaningful action as it relates to this. And so I have spent with our leaders much time helping them in that area. And I'm happy to give some examples, Brian, of of ways that we've tried to do this over the years at New Life.
0: Please, yeah, if you could give us a couple of examples, I think that would be helpful.
1: For that formational piece, one of the things that we've done is we've regularly connected family systems theory with uh, matters of racial and ethnic reconciliation. And family systems theories, I think, is one of the most important areas of, for pastors to be growing in. And what family systems, the brilliance of family systems, one of the areas of it is it seeks to understand the ways that we have been shaped by our families of origin. Uh, at New Life, we say Jesus might live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. And so there's some stuff that's deep inside of you that's generational, both positive and negative. We've received positive legacies from our family of origin, and we've received negative legacies from our families of origin. And to the degree that we are aware of those things and then submitting that under the authority of Jesus, we're going to perpetuate things one generation to the next. And so I lead our leaders often in a very simple skill connecting family of origin and race. And I ask a very simple question and you'd be surprised, maybe not surprised how difficult it is for people to respond. I ask a question, what messages uh, explicitly or subconsciously handed down did your family give you about, and let's list it, black people, white people, Hispanic people, Asian people, uh, Middle Eastern, uh, Mm. a Native American, Mm. what messages, uh, implicitly spoken, consciously spoken, unconsciously, and name it, what have been the implications of that? And I remember leading 80 of our leaders in this exercise a couple of years ago before COVID, right before COVID. And I'm walking around the sanctuary as our leaders are responding to this question. And there was one guy who I saw his page was blank. And I just leaned over to him and I said, hey, man, we've been in this for 10 minutes so far. Nothing comes to mind. And he was a Korean-American man who had particular experiences with black people in Los Angeles. And Mm. he had such difficulty naming the messages that he's received. For him, it was so shameful to actually name it on paper. And I'm like coaching him, name it, brother. Come on, put it on the paper. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Right, right. And
1: finally he did it. Uh, But I have a simple exercise like that to, number one, grow in that kind of awareness of the ways we've been socialized by our families has been such an important aspect of taking the next step of racial and ethnic awareness for the sake of surrendering all these things to Jesus.
0: This is really important because if i if I'm hearing you right, um, what you're saying is none of us comes to Jesus and certainly not to a local church as a blank sheet of paper mm-hmm. we've We've all been culturally formed in various yeah. ways, and yeah. we have to begin with kind of seeing the ways in which we've been formed, um, you know, uh, culture. There's good things about it. There's some not so good things about it. And we have to be able to um, name these things, walk in these things. You know, one of the analogies I like to use along these lines, Rich, is marriage. Uh, I didn't realize the ways in which um, I had been deeply formed, some of which in very unhealthy ways, until I got married. And those things had a bright light shined on them. And then, then I was forced to, to wrestle with those things. And so when we're talking about ethnic unity in the local church, uh, a part of what you're saying is we all, no matter what our ethnicity is, we've been shaped and formed uh, certain ways. some of those congruent with the gospel and some of those not congruent with the gospel.
1: Absolutely. You know, when Paul says in Ephesians to put off the old self and put on the new self, Another way to think about that as well, which I think would be biblically permissible, is put off the old family because that self was formed in a particular context. Mm. And to the degree that we're able to recognize that context that formed that self and to now resist it for a better family, for a different kind of family that's rooted in a different set of values, uh, again, we're not going to... Uh, experience the kind, the fruit of the gospel uh, that Jesus made available for us.
0: Yeah. So help me with, with applications to this. Um, So maybe, you know, as an African American, one of the ways a person could be formed uh, is to always think suspiciously of white people to Mm -hmm. the point where white people from jump, are working from a deficit with you? Um, mm-hmm. is, is that is that one of the things you could be getting at?
1: Absolutely, I, I think for in the context that I'm in, which we have 10 percent of our churches white, uh, and so uh, the ways that we think about that is often I come at I, I arrive at that point, but after I arrive at the point that says uh, what is the usual message related to uh, black people, brown people, people of color is uh, white is superior. Uh, And I have lived with a level of inferiority. I need to get into the neighborhoods where white people are at, the schools where white people are at. And so I usually begin there as like, at the same time to talk about the estrangement that exists between ethnic cultures, racial racism, such is, um, Yes, identifying that suspicion and what work do I need to do in my own soul to resist that, to go in the way of love, to go in the way of reconciliation, to go in the way of unity. Uh, but that is absolutely, um, uh, it could be a, the fruit of that kind of uh, reflection and self-awareness.
0: That's good. You know, I, I, I tell people um, that, you know, as I work with a lot of, of leaders, uh, you know, f- people who aspire, I don't know, to plant churches, so many have a romanticized perspective mm. of the multi-ethnic church, and it, it can be a <laughs> glorious headache, <laughs> and, you know, the journey from ethnic diversity to ethnic unity is a very wow. hard one, right? Yeah. Um, and we're just kind of coming off, I think, the hardest stretch for those of us in this work Mm -hmm. of my lifetime. How was 2020 and its aftermath, you know, the incredible uh, pressure we felt uh, culturally, racially, politically? What was that like for you to lead uh, a diverse church through that, Rich?
1: Well, it, it was very painful and, and very difficult. And uh, people often think, to your point, uh, because our church is so diverse, oh, you guys, I mean, you guys must have your act together. Things must be wonderful. No, no. that uh, Our church is where the demons really manifest. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's when the powers and principalities are really at work. Right. You get more people together that are different. Yep. I mean, yeah, it's beautiful for the website. Uh, but for everything else, we're going to have some challenges. And so when the pandemic began, uh, you know, we shifted and everyone was fine with online. And then we started seeing after George Floyd was murdered, we saw, uh, you know, I, I led a prayer protest in terms of, I opened up the prayer protest with a prayer of lament. The number of churches joined together on Queens Boulevard and, uh, that's when I started receiving emails from people who, uh, you know, saw that I was at an event on social media that had Black Lives Matter signs. And they uh, immediately came to the conclusion that Rich must be on board with everything that Black Lives Matter is doing. And so at that point, I started going, huh, uh, I'm starting to get these emails. This is uh, I'm starting to get these Zoom phone calls now, these pastoral meetings that, uh, are very stressful and so there was a season with that but then the biggest tension happened after January 6th sure. and I after January 6th I got up I I, I changed my sermon uh, you know it happened on a Wednesday and by Thursday I said I think I need to adjust my sermon a little bit here to address certain things and which, just Brian, just pastorally, don't you wish that all conflicts and all kind of craziness happened on a Monday <laughs>
0: or a Sunday I afternoon? Mean, like, yeah. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, give me Sunday afternoon, give me a week, you know, yes, to, yes. to think through my sermon. I don't do this on a Wednesday,
2: right? Right.
1: Uh, and so on Thursday, I adjusted my sermon and. I saw that, uh, according to the church calendar that many uh, adhere to, it was focusing on the baptism of Jesus on that Sunday. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to preach a message about our baptism. Who do we belong to as Christians? Mm. And so that day I I preached about our baptism and said, these are the things that will um, put your baptism in danger in the sense of your witness. And I said things like cable news discipleship. And I said things like conspiracy theories and charismatic prophecies and corrosive racism. And I was just naming, you know, the stuff there. And a few weeks later, I started getting email after email from people who didn't like what I said. I'm thinking, we've been talking about this for many years. What's happening here? Right. And uh, all I, 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 again, I think the powers and principalities at work. And I started having numerous Zoom meetings of people who were saying, I'm leaving the church, or they were saying, here's some of the things that I didn't like what you said, Pastor Rich. And then I would find out they left the church two weeks later. And so, um, it was very painful and which led to a lot of interior soul work that actually led to some personal breakthrough, honestly, in my own life. Uh, but it was very painful, Brian. And I, I mean, I think it was painful for everyone. Uh, and, some of these churches that are very diverse, there's nothing to romanticize about this. Uh, it is very challenging to lead in this. It's not a recipe for church growth, that's for sure. Uh, the multi-ethnic church. You're not going to rapidly grow churches. I mean, we've been at it for 35 years, and we've slowly grown. We're a large church, yes, but we've slowly grown because the tensions are so great. Right. If you're going to move beyond aesthetic diversity
2: that's
0: right. and
1: stay there. So um yeah. very painful.
0: Yeah, you know I well uh, almost parenthetically I, I was just having a um a cup of coffee earlier today with a young leader who uh is he's African American he's on staff at a large white church that is looking to be multi-ethnic. It's not summit but I said, you know, he was talking about some of the challenges. I said, you know, a lot of times as leaders, you have to make a decision. Do I want to be a mega church or do I want to be multi-ethnic? Because oftentimes those two things aren't exactly the same. But I think you touch on something which is, which is one of the greatest ironies of the multi-ethnic church. Because if I'm hearing you right, Rich, and I've been there, it almost catches you off guard where mm-hmm. sometimes you can assume— just because you go to a multi-ethnic church, you are more mature, further advanced down the road, and then something happens.
2: Yeah. And then the, the
0: next thing you know, the, the immaturity of people who come to a multi-ethnic church, sit in multi-ethnic small groups, and stuff just gets exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Um And then what it does to me as a leader, Rich goes, man, I I feel a sense of failure. Like I thought I had prepared you well, led you well for these kinds of moments. Does this resonate with you, Rich?
1: Man, pastorally, I feel often, and I don't, I don't feel this way in a way that's like condemning, but I feel like a failure most of the time. Like, what am I doing wrong pastorally (laughs) that we still? I mean, which is why I love reading the New Testament because Paul understands me. You know, Corinthians and right. Galatians. They, I mean, they had their problems too. And I'm thinking, right. okay, that was Paul. Right. So I'm in company here. So I, absolutely. And and to your point, you know, um, I, I I let our congregation know on a regular basis uh, that we are called to be more than just a sanctified subway car. Mm. Uh, you know, in New York City, a subway car. You know, it's a crowd of anonymous, diverse people in close proximity. Mm. And we are called to be more than just a sanctified subway car. Mm. And it's very easy to think that because we have people that are in small groups with people who don't look like them, that they're you know inherently more mature and more godly. And I have found some people just like that because it's another way to get feel better about themselves. Uh, I, I you know I'm open to other people, but when the rubber meets the road, to your point, and we have to start talking about real issues. And the way society is organized and such, that's when it gets very difficult. So, uh, it's, it's a very challenging, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Right. Uh, but let's not mis- be mistaken here. This is very difficult work to be involved in. Right.
0: So much more I could talk to you about, Rich. Let's go one more, you know, because when we're talking about practical things, uh, you you brought up just a robust understanding of the gospel that yes Mm -hmm. and amen, it's vertical. It's saved by grace through faith, through the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ, as Mm -hmm. evidenced by how you treat people. I mean, that's just Mm -hmm. kind of kind of paraphrasing you, which I would say amen and amen to that. I think a second, and we'll, we'll land the plane on this, Rich, a second important point, at least from my perch, that I think, I think 2020 really unearthed is, is the need for empathy. I, I, I didn't feel a lot of empathy. You know, you, you yeah. had some individuals who expressed more outrage over riots than mm-hmm. with what was actually happening to humanity. And yes, riots are problematic, but I didn't feel a whole lot of empathy there, so on and so forth. Um, What have you done? Are you doing? I'm just thinking about, you know, the person listening in just going, how can I grow in multi-ethnic cross-cultural empathy? Um, Mm -hmm. Can you you give us some things to hang our hat on, Rich?
1: I think more than anything, and part of this is connected to— some other of the thinking that I've done related to the contemplative life and related to interior examination. Um, And so I I say that within a larger context. At New Life, we talk about uh, incarnational listening. What -hmm. does it mean to leave our world and enter into the world of someone else and to allow their narrative, their values, their fears, their struggles to begin to shape your life? This is a profoundly christological thing to do. Uh, this is John one fourteen, and so the task of, of of listening without trying to fix, of listening for the sake of understanding, of listening with a sense of deep curiosity, which is really what empathy. Mm. Really, that mm. that's what that's the fruit. Curiosity is what leads to empathy. Mm. Uh, I I do want to hear about what it's been like for you. I do want to hear about what you're angry about. I do want to hear about what you're sad about. And so I think that is what we are invited to do. The the challenge is how do we get there? How do we get to a place where uh, we're able to do that? And just returning to that one thing about family systems theory, I have found the word differentiation to be really helpful in getting to that end. And differentiation very simply is this. Here's my definition of it. It's remaining close to God, to myself, and to others, especially in times of high anxiety, and resisting the opposite, polar opposite pull of cutting people off or being fused into them. We, We usually have two options whenever anxiety gets high, whenever conflict emerges. We cut people off. Or, and, or we disappear into them. We disappear from them, or we disappear into them. Differentiation is, what does it mean to be present? Mm. And more than anything, this is why contemplative prayer is so helpful for me, because contemplative prayer is about attentiveness to the presence of God, which is to form me to be attentive to the presence of those who are in front of me, whether they be my children, my wife, someone who thinks differently and votes differently than I do. Mm. It's that's why we need contemplative life, because it trains our souls to be present and to hold space with others. And so, yes, it preaches well, it teaches well, it podcasts well, all the rest. Uh, but I think this is the task. How do we withstand the pressures of wanting to cut people off immediately or just be fused into them where we disappear? And I think that's a, life, that, that's a life's work. That's going to happen over the course of many, many years, but it is a journey that I think we all need to
0: be on. I love it. You've been uh, listening to a conversation I've been having with Rich Volotis. He's the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, uh, the most diverse church uh, I've ever been to in my life. God's using Rich in phenomenal ways. Pick up his book, The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, the last thing as a preacher, I'm allowed to say that multiple times, by the way, Rich, you understand <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> you've got a book coming out. I just saw on social media you had just kind of, you know, hit send, which is the best feeling as a writer, uh, until they hit you back with all the edits you have to make. So I don't know if you're <laughs> in that world. I'm all done with that,
1: thankfully.
0: OK. Tell us about this new book you got coming out.
1: Yeah, it's a, bu- it's a book called, thank you, Brian, it's a book called Good and Beautiful and Kind. It comes from a poem from Langston Hughes. Mm. Uh, Langston Hughes, that's the title. He wrote a, a poem called Tired, and he said, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the book really is taking Hughes's poem And asking a couple of questions. Uh, How do we get to the worms that are eating at the rind? What does it mean to cut the world in two? And so the book is uh, in three uh, different parts. It's about becoming whole in a fractured world. And the first part is essentially asking, what are the forces behind the fractures of our world? Mm -hmm. And, And I write about a theology of sin. I write about powers and principalities. And I write about trauma in that first section. And the next section is, what does it mean to walk a different way, to walk a new way towards wholeness? And in those three chapters, I write about contemplative prayer, humility, and differentiation, what I just talked about. And then the last section is, how do we embody this in our world? And in those three chapters, I write about conflict, forgiveness, and justice. And so at its core, it's what Hugh says, I'm longing, we're all longing for a good and beautiful and kind world. And my hope is that this will be a contribution towards that end.
0: Amen. Well, I told you this before, Rich. You are a gift to the world. Uh, I hope this is just um, the second of many books to come. Uh, We really need to hear from you. God's using you in major, major ways. You've been listening to Summit's Kynos Podcast. We are a pastoral podcast exploring what ethnic unity looks like. In a large, predominantly white Southern church, it's Brian Luritz, your host, teaching pastor here at the Summit Church, and this has been a rich conversation (pun intended) with Rich Lotus Till next time, thank you.